2970. Dr. Yahushua Cantor, gentle and attentive care. 718-972-2970. We on. Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. Tonight we have a very wonderful guest, uh, Mr. Yitzhak Welkin. We'll just get to him in one second. And we have a full program, a lot of it dealing with uh, uh, coronavirus and uh, Kashrus. Yeah, that's what, that really is a topic. And this is, the first part is going to be with Mr. Relkin about an interesting area of Hummets and how he's going to be handling it. And uh, without further ado, uh, Mr. Relkin, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you very much, Rabbi okay. Wickler. Uh, you and I have spoken before, years, and I want to start by thanking you and all of your super together. enthusiastic and, uh, listeners. And we a good one this year, right? <laughs> Excuse me? We picked a very good year to get together. <laughs> yes, we have. Uh, one of the reasons that you and I want to talk is, as you already mentioned, about, about the virus. Um, out of an abundance of caution, we're taking things one day at a time. We have not, I have not made any final decisions about exactly what I'm going to do. But as of now, my gamach is in its 11th year, and it is continuing on. Well, first, let's hear what it's all about, because some people don't really know about it. And then we'll go to some, some interesting aspects of it, and go ahead. Great. Let's start at the very beginning. So what I do is, in the Brooklyn community, a lot of people have the minhag of not having any chametz in their house at all. So what I do is I, I collect anything they want to donate, and then once they hand it to me, it becomes my property, so I sell it with my own stuff. Then after Pesach, I make sure that it's all given away to families in need. How this all started was actually an accident. I was doing my own Pesach preparations about, about 10 years ago, and it was trash day, and there was just a box of food left out on the street. And I was stunned to see an entire box of food on the street. So I took it, with, and I sold it with my own stuff. And then after Pesach, I gave it to a family who I knew could use the help. And after that, I could not get that box out of my mind because we do one of our emphases is Baltashas, that we don't like to waste things. So I, I was thinking to myself, well, there's Baltash this, and we know that people in our community are hurting. So I started thinking of ways that I could draw attention to this fact. So I, I started uh, sending out messages in, in, in you know appropriate places where Jewish people would, would hear my message, and, and it grew little by little. The first few years was 100 pounds there, 200 pounds there. And after about the fourth year, I finally broke through and, and, and got 3,500 pounds that, that fourth year. Wow. And it's been growing ever since. The community is very enthusiastic about it. They, they, they want to help support it because they don't want to throw it away. They don't want to give it the food to their cleaning lady. And they, and, they, and they understand what the project's all about, that it's better that the food should go to families in need. And that's what I do. How, how much is the most you got in one year? The most that I ever got in one year was uh, just over 8,000 pounds of food in one year. Uh, wow. And over a course of the first 10 years that I've done this project, I have given, gathered and given away 36,000 pounds of food. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, let me go back a second here. So this has been going on for almost 10 years now. We're talking only in the Flatbush area, unless somebody uh, wants to come into the Flatbush area. So you're going to tell us, tell us right now what is your telephone address, whatever you want to give out. Well, we're mentioning great. the two so, lines, but let's please get it out once. Okay, great. I'll, I actually have two, because I actually have a gentleman in Muncie who collects on my behalf. But let's start with me. So my name is Yitzhak Relkin. Okay, so my name is Yitzhak. My telephone number is 718-377-6361. And my email address, uh, if you want to contact me that way, is Yitzhak at Relkin.com. That's Y-I-T-Z-C-H-A-K at relkin, R-E-L-K-I-N.com, and please put Hamas Kamach in the subject line. As I just mentioned, I also work with a man named Gershon, uh, who lives in Muncie, and if you would like to, if you live in the Muncie area and you want to uh, donate your Hamas that way, his telephone number is 845-238-0982. So we're going to ask you to repeat both numbers again once. Go ahead. Sure. My telephone number is 718 377-6361, and Gershon's telephone number in Muncie is 845-238-0982. Now, I, this, is, uh, this is something that 
you know, you've been giving away to different people when they come and they they take the chametz and they go. Are there any interesting stories that you have about uh, the, either the types of people or whatever somebody uh, in a particular case? Give us a little bit. Is there, is there any anecdote you want to throw? Um, in? Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll try and keep them general. I, I wouldn't want to get too specific and, and, and give any no. We don't want to give revealing away details away. We just want to get an idea that. They know that all this effort was really something very valuable. Well, that's actually one of the reasons why I know how much food that I've given away is I weigh every box so that the community will understand how how much of an impact they are having. If I didn't, if I just said to people, "Oh, well, I, you know, I've given away some food and and I've helped," and a couple people came, the obvious question would be, "Well, how much did you give away?" So when I weigh every box now, when I am able to say to people that in 10 years I gave away 36,000 pounds of food. Those people who I'm talking to really can begin to understand that that 36,000 pounds of food is that that's a lot of food. Right. So some interesting stories that have happened is, you know, sometimes uh, like a cold old guy, you know, he'll bring his kids along, and and some of the first food that comes to me, you know, because I I run between Parham and Pesach, so some of the first food that comes, quite unsurprisingly, is is shalafmanos, is is nasharai and candy and cookies. So sometimes, like a cool little guy, will bring his kids along. So of course, <laughs> the little kids are enthusiastic, and they're running, you know, in my landlord's garage where all the food is stored. And the first thing they see is all the uh, all the shalachmano. So they're jumping up and down, all enthusiastic, while the you know the father is looking me in the eyes, and he's looking at the pasta and the and the flour and, and the practical things. So that's just an interesting dichotomy to uh, to see. Right. But did, did, I mean, you give a shkoyach sometimes, right? Some people will say thank you, right? Yes, everybody is, is very appreciative, and many times some of the people who come actually have asked me to pass along their akarasatov to the people who donate. So again, to the people, to your listeners who, in the past, who may have donated, the people who are receiving, you know, thank you, thank they thank you so much for that because some of them, some of the people who come, it's quite obvious that they really need help. But, you know, their their clothing is not necessarily in the greatest condition, and the, and their car is not necessarily in the greatest condition. So sometimes it's, it's extremely obvious that the people need the help and are benefiting from the help. So uh, this year, I mean, hopefully we'll be able to get the thing up and, and, and service the people before and afterwards. Uh, and uh, at this present time, where you're accepting, right? Yes, I am. As I, I mentioned before, because of the current situation, we're taking things day by day, and to to whether we're going to continue, or if for some odd reason things continue to get worse, you know, with what's going on in the community, whether we might have to shut down. Um, we don't want. I don't want to shut down. I desperately want to help these people because, as I said, sometimes it's sometimes it's quite obvious that they really need the help. But if it becomes necessary to to close because of the situation, you know, we'll. I, I will let call people when people call me to find out more information. I unfortunately will tell people if it comes to that. But as of now, we're taking things day by day. You know, because the Rebbeim have been in, in very heavy consultation. Some of you may have heard there. I guess uh, the Aguda, the, some of the the Gedoli Hador uh, were you know Gedolim were sitting down talking about it, and and they're starting to suggest some some pretty severe restrictions. So you know, I. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to keep that in mind as I move forward, too. Well, we hope that at least uh, we, that you won't have to do anything dramatic like that because the, I think the need this year will be greater than in the past. So that's uh, definitely something everyone should keep in mind. So one uh, piece of advice to all my listeners, if you want to avail yourself of Mr. Elkin's offer, uh, and, and whoever Gershon is as well, uh, then you should do it a ASAP, I would say, before anything else happens, and we, you'll be able to take care of it. Of course, Mr. Welkin is accepting responsibility for the Hummets, and he's selling it, and you no longer have any connection to it. And, uh, and, and from, as for anybody's donating side, that they don't have to, there's no, down, there's no downside to this whole matter. It's only up, up, up. So if you can get, uh, get up, do something now. I know it sounds way before Pesach, but there is plenty of Hummets uh, in everybody's house. And if they could uh, part with it now, some of it now, which they know they're never going to make it till the pace, they're never going to use it all up. It would be a good idea to uh, to take advantage. So we're going to give the numbers once more. What are they? 
So my telephone number is 718-377-6361, and Gershon in Muncie is 845-238-0982. So I'd just like to make one other point, Rabbi Wickler, if, if you'll allow me, is that I want to make sure to protect everybody's privacy. So um, when people call me to come over, if they are interested in, in taking some of the food, it's, one, it's by appointment only, and people are only allowed to come one at a time because I want you to, if you are a person who is going to be coming to, to take some of the food, I don't want you, I know it might be hard enough for you to ask for help as it is, so I don't want you to have to feel embarrassed that there might be a bunch of people here, so it's only one at a time and by appointment only. Beautiful, beautiful. So I see not just that 10 years went by, but you put a lot of thought into this. Well, just like when anything develops over time, you 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 see where the good parts are, and you see where the the problems are that need to be to to, to be fixed. So that was one particular thing that was just obvious in the beginning. I couldn't have people being embarrassed. You know, I, as I said, it's sometimes I, I understand that it could be hard enough that someone would want to ask for help. So I want to make sure to to mitigate any embarrassment. But no one should feel uh, frustrated in calling you after Pesach. If they have any, if they'd like to take advantage of it, I'm sure that you'll be very cooperative, and hopefully everything will work out. I want to thank you, Mr. Welkin, for joining us again. I don't know if you have to wait two years. Maybe we do it every year. But anyway, we definitely appreciate you coming on, and uh, I, I think it, that uh, hopefully this year will be a big year for you. And in any event, I want you to know that for each person who takes, it was a big year. So you, you're helping people, whether it's, this many pounds and that many pounds, you know, you, you're weighing it. But I don't look at life like that. I look at it like you help one person, you did a world. What's the difference in numbers? I mean, I, I've seen some Dafyomi Shurim by Gedolim, by great people, two and three and four students. You know, it, it doesn't, numbers don't mean anything to me. I, I, it's just the, the desire to help another Jew. That's what's really great. Thank you very much. And Bechad Kashi Chag Kosher Sameach to you and your listeners. Thank you. So now we're going to go on with our regular programming here. I have so much to talk about. First, let me go backwards. Um, hopefully on, on April 6th, by Nachum Rabinowitz join us. I, I, I declare it again with, uh, with Nisan, but that's, I think, a, April 6th. And again with Nachum Rabinowitz. Um, that's when he, he works with the OU, and he's in charge of Pesach the basic booklet for the OU, and he knows everything that's going on about Pesach. Let me have him on every year to answer questions. And if anybody would like to send questions to us, that's probably the easiest way, although maybe we can arrange a call in, but I suggest uh, you'd send me any questions you have for Rabbi Rabinowitz, for Kashrus, for Pesach, and that would be, you could send it to Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. I mean, you could also call and leave a message on our machine. Better leave a message. It takes a lot of time. 718-336-8544 in Brooklyn. Or you can call us 732-534-9363 in Lakewood. Now, what I want to go on to today is two things. Uh, we'll start with the more, I think the more important one right now is uh, well, actually, both are important. One is about what the cautious agencies are doing about making sure that the food that you eat is kosher. And that is really a big question, as you can imagine. Forget about China and forget about whatever it is. What about America? What about the United States of America, a cautious organization that goes all across America, but it's going in planes, they're going to be somewhat grounded and somewhat limited, etc. And there's danger out there, and we can't put the mashkichim in danger. So what are our cautious agencies doing about it? That's one question, and we'll talk about it. And then the other question, which is crucial, and I'm going to start with that second one first, just because I, I'm personally involved in it, is the question of simchas, simachos. Right now, a bar mitzvah, a, 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 a chasana, anything, any gathering of people. Now, we're going to assume that for the next, I mean, the, the president mentioned that we might go through August with concern. The, uh, the, the, the mayor of New York 
said it might go, as far as the school goes, till the end of the school year, which is in June. But the president made it sound like we might be fighting this problem in the summer. And I can't even think that anything beyond that. So uh, let's, let's assume it's going to go on for months. What are the cautious agencies doing is one thing, but what are we doing to survive? to live as human beings, as from Jews, what are we supposed to do? So I can't talk for every community. Every community is different. Every shul, every yeshiva, everyone's different. Pretty much it looks like the yeshivas are all going to be closed soon, even the ones that are open today, by Wednesday in, in New Jersey, and who knows what, uh, all the areas. It's very possible that all the yeshiva katanas, the elementary, the high schools will be closed. I don't want to talk about it too publicly, but uh, some of the schools will continue in small groups in houses. That's, that you can understand, and maybe it doesn't, it's under the radar, it's not going to be a big problem. Hopefully everything will go well. But whatever that is, and it's basically only for the boys and maybe the girls, I don't know what the girls are going to be doing. It, but let's, let's do not discuss the elementary school and the high schools. I don't know what's going on in the yeshiva gadolas, if they're going to close or not, uh, what's going to be, how they're going to divide up, where they're going to learn, maybe all over the Internet. Maybe they'll take over the Internet. Maybe they'll be learning on telephones. I don't know. But leave that all aside. What about a simcha? So assuming that there's going to be such a thing as a shul and that we don't have to daven in the street and uh, that we're allowed to congregate in small numbers together, which is what the situation is today in most areas, although not all areas, but in many areas we can congregate in small numbers and we can go to shul. What about a bar mitzvah, a chasana, anything? So the guidelines now official is 50 people or less for, for the big gathering. So far, as I said, shuls are open. So we're talking about small gatherings, whatever they are very small gathering. So I have two situations I want to share with you. One is a personal one where I participated in a bar mitzvah that took place this past Shabbos in a community where the shuls were closed. Shuls were closed. We had to daven in the house. We had a small number of people. And particularly, I was very impressed by this too, they, they had very few people. We had a little more than a minion I don't think there were 15 uh, adult males, means means 13 and above. I don't think there were 15. And we did get two Sifre Torah and another, which was a, a cloth. So we, had, we were well prepared, that's for sure. We had all of that, and, um, and we went through the Bar Mitzvah. And the Bar Mitzvah boy laying the whole Kriyatah Torah, at least the first Sefer, and, um, and and he davened for the omelet, and they were in his own house. And it, it was wonderful. It after every aliyah, every aliyah, the people there were spontaneous, but they all sang. I think a little dancing, and I don't remember if it was there any serious dancing, but I remember the dancing was at the end. But every aliyah, they sang for a few seconds, I mean, more than a few seconds. And the boy was real pumped. He was really pumped up. Here, you know, you want to go to shul. You want to get, uh, you always throw, and, and don't think they didn't throw candy at him. And his brother and his, and his cousins and the other people were throwing, and they were throwing again and again. They made up for all the people who were not there. He got more candy on his head, and they were close proximity, so they really hit him. So he got more candy on his head than I think any bar mitzvah boy ever. That's the truth. Yeah, it was very one piece of candy. Each one had one piece. They threw it, you know, with a bunch of one single pieces. They wasn't they weren't they'd make bags. They just took bags of uh, of candy and threw one at a time, and they kept clobbering him again and again and again. It was it, he 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 felt the full impact of it, and then it was nice. It, was nice. it wasn't uh, to hurt him in any way. It was just simply fun. And, 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 and to make it feel good. And here, singing every single aliyah. It was a beautiful situation. Afterwards, he made, they were supposed to make a kiddush in the shul. Instead, they made the kiddush in front of the house. There seems to be, they have a, like a private 
driveway, an private street there, and uh, there's no problem with uh, carrying. And they were they had everybody outside. It was not warm, but everybody ate outside. The chalent was hot, and people ate outside. The kiddish came to the kiddish, even though they didn't daven in the minion because the minion was limited. They would, didn't want to go above, I think, a minion and a half or something like that. So he had uh, two parts already to the bar mitzvah. We continue on. What happened in, uh, in every course, every meal, you know, the grandparents were speaking, and then the, the mishpacha that was speaking, everyone was speaking, and, and, and the boy said his, uh, his uh, he, he said his pshetel because he didn't know if anything was going to happen after Shabbos. There was supposed to be a Sunday night program, and he so he did his shuttle Friday night. The whole thing, and of course it was a wonderful thing and well received. Got this very small oil, and a few people from the neighborhood walked in a little bit to hear, and and sang a little bit. And that was it. Came uh, Mosei Shabbos, and he was supposed to have a Sunday night bar mitzvah in a shul, and it was set up with a caterer. And the caterer let the family know it's canceled. The shul canceled on them. But if they want, he could do something, maybe on Sunday afternoon, maybe in Borough Park, maybe we could find a place. The family said, let's ask the boy. And they asked the boy, and he said, he'll have it tonight. So we had it, Mosei Shabbos, in the same room. It was in his, uh, it was in his dining room. But the same people came. There was no room, no, no people. Later on, a few people in the mishpacha showed up, but basically it was the same 15 people. And they, they brought in a, a one-man band who would have been playing on Sunday night. And he came in, and he set it up in the little space that we, that we had. He set it up for him to be in the same room, and to, to provide the music, and it wasn't like, you know, blinding music. I mean, you could, even though we were right on top of it, he didn't uh, blast it out, and he made it beautiful, made beautiful music, and the people started to dance with the boy. But they didn't just dance with the boy. They danced non-stop, non-stop. It went on the full time. I mean, I don't know, maybe an hour, I don't know, maybe more, but it, it could non-stop. Everybody participating again and again and again, and they lifted the boy up on a chair a number of times, and everyone danced with him. And some people weren't touching him. You know, they, there are some people with the with the arms in between arms, beat arms. Some people did touch him. Depends, you know, whatever it is, and they watched the hands off afterwards. It said, but they did. They made the boy feel like a million dollars. And since it was. It was this. It was the Sunday night. It was the Saturday night, and he had planned to do a. Uh, he had planned to do a seum, so he made the seum there, Mosei Shabbos, and this dancing, and he, I think he said the pshetel also. He said the pshetel second time. By this time, you certainly knew it very well. We knew it also a little bit. Very complicated little pshetel, and uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. So at the very end, I mean. We made him feel like a million dollars. At the very end, the uh, the one-man band, the, the the father of the boy, gave him the check for for, for performing. And he ripped up the check. That's too much. Too much. And he and he and he returned the money, turned the check, and that, I don't whether I don't I have no idea how much they paid him in the end. Obviously, they're going to give him something for his time. But he felt it was over the top, too much for what he did, and he refused the check, ripped it up. Now I was thinking a lot about this, and it, you know, it, it was it was it, it was a beautiful Shabbos. The boy felt like a million dollars, and he wanted to have all his friends, and he wanted to have a big party, and he wanted to have the fancy thing, and he wanted all the meal, all the the fancy meal, and he wanted all of that. But he had. A wonderful time. He felt like a million dollars. And he felt like a real bummitsa boy in the every sense and sense of the word. And people danced with him nonstop. It was just the same people over and over again. Would you have a big group? 
Yeah, everybody dances when dances five minutes out, five minutes this one. I'm all tired out, and then goes. But here you couldn't stop. You had to keep going because there's nobody else in the room, and you got to keep the bar mitzvah boy happy. And they went out of their way. Every person there participated, like ten people or more. It was amazing, and the boy felt like a million dollars, and it was absolutely everything a bar mitzvah boy wants. Everything, including the, the music, and of course they took some pictures. So that is an example of something that was done in the house during this crisis. So that was Shabbos. So today, I believe it was today, yes, today I got a call from a Talmud of mine whose daughter is getting married Wednesday night. I want to know what I should do. I told him, you get, they gave guidelines of 50 people. He said people are doing more. I said, listen, that's your decision. You could do whatever you want. But if you want to do 50 people and, you know, Beyonce, the guidelines that the government is giving out, don't worry. They will have a wonderful time. Just give them everything. You know, the, the, the girl wanted very much... Uh, some, some DJ to play certain music for them. I said, call a kavod, pay for it, finished. And she wants this, she wants that. Do everything. It's a regular chasana. But don't postpone. They were talking about postpone. I said, don't postpone the chasana. A chasana? We don't postpone chasanas. I mean, you know, God forbid that somebody's sick in the family and the cetera, there may be something different. But we're talking over here. This situation is a preventative me- measure at the present time. Thank God everyone uh, who, who would have been participating is feeling okay, I hope. And you, you go on with the wedding. Hassan and Kali, you don't stop. I can't talk about the details completely, but Rav Tuvia Goldstein, who was my matzmich, who gave me smicha, Rav Tuvia Goldstein had an interesting, not interesting, a challenging question, very challenging question. I know the, I know the people involved in it somewhat. They, they came to Rav Tuvia Goldstein, the Hassan and Kala want to get married, but they're being advised not to get married. Why is that? Because the Hassan tested positive for one of these infections that it's forbidden for him to conduct himself like a regular husband with his wife for two years. Two years. If they're married, he cannot conduct himself in a normal fashion, I'm not going to elaborate on the radio now, this is a family hour, he cannot continue exactly the way a husband and wife do, but they will be married, they will live together in the house. Should they perform the wedding or should they wait the two years? Octavia Goldstein said, get married now, and you'll do what you have to do, but you get married now. That's the approach. That's the das Torah that my Rebbe of Tuvia Goldstein had. And I told him, and I said, they got to get married. they got to get married Wednesday night. Whoever's there, whoever's not there, if you can only have 50 people, so you only have 50 people, make sure it's something that the Chassan and the Kala feel happy about. You, if your job is to make them feel good, it's Sibchas Chassan the Kala, just like that Bar Mitzvah boy. We made him feel like a million dollars. The chassan and kala have to leave that hall feeling like a million dollars, like they got a full chasana, they weren't cheated. So how then do you explain to the chassan and the kala what's happening? And as, uh, anybody else whose bar mitzvah is scheduled now, whose chasana is scheduled, scheduled now, what are they supposed to feel? Hashem doesn't love me? Hashem doesn't care? I, I did something wrong? I'm being punished? Is that what they're supposed to feel the day of their wedding? Is that what they're supposed to feel when they become bar mitzvah? I couldn't get what I needed. Hashem doesn't really love me. Is that what he's supposed to feel? So I explained to, the, to this Talmud of mine to tell his daughter and to make sure that the chassan and the kala are happy and that they were misameach the chassan and kala. And you tell them that Hashem did this because he wanted you to know that the people who are your family and your close friends, that they love you. And you will know that they love you. 
That's why Hashem is doing it for you. Every person has a different matzah. Every time something happens, it affects every individual. The reason why you have to go through this is for you to appreciate more how much your parents and your siblings and your close relatives and your dear friends care about you. And you're going to see that at that wedding. That's what I told them. That's what I told them, the message to communicate with the young couple and definitely to go through with it, 100%. Then they said, maybe you'll have something. I said, maybe you'll have something afterwards down the road, in the summer, during the summer, whatever it is. I don't know when the time is going to be. I hope it's going to be soon. But whatever that time is when the coronavirus is, is is basically over and people are going to go back to normal living, at that time, you can schedule whatever you want. If you want to, there's nothing wrong with it. And even if she's on the way to, uh, to another simcha, it's not such a problem if we celebrate it. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. And the bar mitzvah boy, for sure, I would say the same thing. I'm telling I told some bar mitzvah uh, people who are having bar mitzvahs. I told them, I said, if you want to, you can schedule something for afterwards. That, that there's nothing wrong about bar mitzvah time. You know, I don't know if you, I'm not in to elaborate on it, but I think you all know that Lubavitch celebrates bar mitzvahs at the Kosel. They bring people in from across the world, and they have special bar mitzvahs for people who don't have children, fathers, and all kinds of things. They have special bar mitzvahs. Those bar mitzvah boys are not bar mitzvah. They're already bar mitzvah. They're a few months later. Nothing wrong in celebrating your bar mitzvah a few months later if it couldn't be celebrated completely at the time you were bar mitzvah. But the simcha becoming a bar mitzvah, oh, we can give those people a wonderful time. So this is my reaction to coronavirus and how we, when we're celebrating simchas, simchas, how we can give over to these people that Hashem loves them and that we love them. And that's what I advise to anybody that would call me and you can send the message along the line because I'm sure there are many people who have simchas and smuchos that you're going to be contacting, you're going to be invited to, and you're going to speak to. And um, just decide, <laughs> absolute aside. Whenever I hear somebody's making a simcha, I always share with them the one thing that was told to me at when we made our first chasana. Woman told me, she said, Rabbi Wickler, if you're shooting for 100 percent, you're going to be very upset. Think. You want to have 80%. And if you want to have 80% of simcha and happiness and everything should go perfect, this 80% goes okay, be happy. Anything else is gravy. That's what she told me. And I told it to countless people, and they always thank me. And some people told me I saved their life. This is the little thing that I told you. This was a very good point that she made. And, I, and I, so the question is, what's now? You have 80%? I mean, the people were expecting, you know, all these people and this thing. So I told you, listen to what I just told you here. I'm telling you that, yes, you're gaining something. Whenever you lose something, you gain something. Whenever you gain something, you lose something. The the world is is a world of compensation. When these people are not coming to the hasana, and you don't have the people there that you want to have, you know, it's very, very small turnout, this and that. But if those people throw themselves in and show how much they care about you, you gained in another way, in a big, beautiful way. That's what I share with all of you. Now, we have a little time, and I'm going to try to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world of Kashmir. I can't tell you everything because I don't know if I, to, I didn't have permission. I didn't ask for permission. So you don't have to ask me how I know, and I don't have to tell you everything. But I'm going to share with you that which you don't know. Nobody knows at the present time except a few insiders. We're obviously all facing the same challenge at the same time. All the cautious agencies have the problem that they're giving hashkocha. Let's say, for example, they were giving hashkocha, and the hashkocha is up this month, this week, today. Are they going to give another year? And they, they, they're giving hashkacha on something that's all the way in China. Well, maybe China might be closed. Maybe the places are closed already, so that might be an easier one. But what are they going to do when it starts up? Are they going to be ready to go out there the first day? What about uh, other countries that are having problems now? How can kashras, world kashras continue in this crisis? 
That's a big question. So don't think everybody's sleeping. The conscious agencies had a monumental meeting. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend. I was Baruch Hashem was learning at that time. But there was a monumental meeting over the telephone. It was a conference of all the major conscious organizations. I mean, there were probably 100 or more on the line. It was a serious meeting, and I'm going to share with you a few points that I think I can get away with. First of all, they, they noted the problem. That they, they, the Meshkichim can't go to the plants. It's impossible. Uh, some places, they, you know, they, they'd have to get permission and have to tell them in advance they're coming, which makes it also not such a good idea. So how are we going to continue to give Hashkoch in these places? And I, I, we, had, we commented over here on this show. I didn't even write it in the magazine, and I, I, I think I, feel, I felt a little bad that I didn't write about it there, but I, it was a tight, touchy issue, and now maybe it was like after the fact. It's this question of how can you go in places where it's dangerous to go. And uh, somebody alerted me to this issue, and I, and I, could, I, I talked a lot about it. I, I emailed cautious agencies and talked to them about it, and uh, now I see that they're dealing with it in a very uh, proper way. So, if, if, if the, so a lot of agencies have told their, their mashkichim that they don't want them traveling overseas. And uh, so they're looking into other methods to use. For example, they, they, maybe they can use cameras and they, uh, they'll do inspection with live feed. And, it, and uh, not just look at things later on, but right now monitor it here and with a video camera set up over there. And that's more or less what they're, you know, one of the things they could try to do. And what they're thinking about is like this, very cute, is that the mashkiach will be here, whatever, wherever here is, wherever part of uh, America he's in, and somebody who is in, 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 let's say, China or Japan or whatever, that they would hold a machine and follow instructions, like I have a video camera, and follow instructions that the mashkiach gives as he tells him where to go in the plant. So obviously we're talking about a mashkiach who's familiar with that plant, who has been there a number of times, who knows it like the back of his hand, and when he would go, he'd know just where he wanted to see and what he wanted to see. And he sends this, this guy, who is a goy, probably, working in that other country, um, and he tells him, make a right turn, make a left turn, go to this room, go to that room, I want to see this now, I want to see that now. And this way, to a certain extent, it's an inspection. And, and the truth of the matter is, if you think about it, it is an inspection especially that kind of inspection, where they have cameras that are set up all the time and you don't know what else is going on in the building because there's endless parts of the building, so you really don't know what's happening. I'm, I'm, I remember uh, that one New York, Manhattan restaurant had cheated the mashkiach for a major cautious organization for years. What did he do? The man had tray for food, and he kept it behind the door that said emergency exit only, and it would it would make a ring a bell. So no one ever opened that, and that's where he kept his trace. And this went on for a long time. They closed him down eventually, but the point is, you know, if a person wants to deceive you, they can also make a room that looks like the room, and there can be a real room behind it. In other words, they can. They can make a copy of the wall and, and fool you to thinking this is the, that particular place. They can do anything. But the man who's been there in the building, he knows how to go back and forth and, and follow it up. It's not such a bad thing because if he were there, he also could only walk from one room to the next. He couldn't be in all places at once. So they could fool him at any time, and, and that he's smart enough to figure it out. So this is a pretty good idea, and this is something that is is is, is being coming operative on a, in a major way. Now, another thing is about certification. So let's say, for example, uh, the, it's well, this is a fact. I, I suppose I can get away with it. All the cashless organizations that belong to ACO, 
the Association of Cautious Organizations that have plants in China, we're limiting now the discussion to China, they've decided that they're going to follow the following rules. Number one, if the company makes only what they call group one, group one is things that don't need a shloch at all, and, the, uh, inspect, and, the, and they have to come up now and renew their contract, so they're going to renew it without any problem because it's a group one anyway. Number two, let's say it's not a group one, so then they're going to give them three-month extension, which means that since they were conducting themselves till now properly, they're going to continue to certify the place even though they can't get there in the three months. This, unfortunately, I have to tell you that this is pretty common in the cautious industry, that there will be sometimes a period where they're sort of piggybacking on the work that was done before. Now, there are some companies, let's say, for example, that you, you, you made a deal with them, you're going to come once or more a year. So then you're only going to come to once, and if you want to come to more, you can, get, you can come to more, but you don't necessarily have to. So there are, there are companies where they, they sort of kind of expect you, etc., but they don't really expect you so much. And you see that they're functioning well. Can they be cheating? Of course. Anybody could cheat any day. The whole kashris concept of our kashris is set up on a certain amount of neamonis, on uh, the fact that things have been functioning a certain way, that they will continue to function that way in the future. Everything is set up that way. Once anybody who does any ashkocha leaves the building, you don't know what happens the next minute. So that, for example, even if a person comes every day, the, the stores in, in, in Brooklyn, many of them, or in Lakewood, many of them are only visited, let's say, once a day or once a week. And they rely on, on the, the, the setup and the demonis and, and the possibility that we can walk in again. That's sort of the Yotze Venichnes concept of kashrus that we've been doing here in America for many, many years. So in a certain sense, that's what's happening here internationally. The only difference is that they know we're not coming because we can't, because it's too dangerous. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the obvious issue. So if it's a small type of thing like that, that gives them a three-month extension. Companies which are more complicated, though, that you need a number of visits a year, they're only going to give a three-month uh, extension maximum. Now, three months, if you do your arithmetic, uh, April, May, June, and you, we said we might not finish this thing uh, by, May, by May or June. So I don't know what step two will be. This is step one. You want my personal opinion? I know you didn't ask for it, but I'll give it to you. My personal opinion is that if there's a challenge, if they feel there's a challenge, the cautious agencies will say to the companies, let's say uh, a distributor here in America who's buying products from China or from Japan, and I think they would be even saying it now, maybe it's a good idea for you to look into other countries or local stuff. Maybe you should start selling cookies and crackers and nosh and junk that doesn't have made in China on it. Maybe you should be starting selling things that are made in America, made in Brooklyn, made in, you know, with the Lakewood. Maybe, maybe that should be the new norm. And uh, this thing about uh, China and Japan and the, the Philippines and uh, Thailand and all that, maybe that should be the rarity. And then maybe we will have a less problems for us as a kosher community. So it's, it's heading in that direction. That's, as again, that's my idea that eventually we're going to get away from relying on these countries, which was a bad deal to start with, and many of us opposed it, but it was the consumer and the distributing companies that pushed it, and that's where we are now, and hopefully it'll change a little bit. So if there's some places that don't allow any visitors whatsoever to come in, so now the conscious agency is, is the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the live stream and they're not going to let that in, even though they'll let that in, and they're still going to do products, so it's going to be very hard to, um, after, uh, to, to maybe in the next uh, few weeks, they're going to assess how to handle those. 
because you can't continue to give Ashkacha if you can't monitor it and it's, and it's more complicated. So this is basically a little bit of an overview. I was impressed by, actually it was 50 people, but I was impressed who came to this call. But I was impressed at how seriously they, de they delved into it and tried to make up some kind of rules, general rules. And remember, each conscious agency relies on the other. So this is a very complex issue, and of course it changes day to day. And I just wanted to share with you, which I was impressed by, how seriously the conscious agencies are taking it and how much of a handle they're trying to get on it. And hopefully things will um, be done in Al-Sada Yosef to protect all of us. Now, the next thing I want to do in the few minutes remaining is to discuss with you a few shilas that were discussed at the ACO meeting, which was held uh, two months ago. The, uh, not even two months, but two months ago officially. Okay. Uh, Rabbi Shlomo Miller was one of the people who spoke there. Shlomo Miller is involved with the COR. He's the Chashev who actually has a based in, in, uh, in, in Lakewood as well as in, in, in Canada, and who was one of the main uh, behind uh, supporting the COR. They asked an interesting question, which is an old question, and I, and I go way back with this one. The question was, how do you take off challah when the owner is not a religious Jew? He's Jewish, and you need to take off challah, but the owner is not religious. So how do you arrange for a freshest challah if a non-Shomer Shabbos is the owner? Now, basically, uh, Rabbi Miller gives three approaches, and they're very interesting. Some of them I know before, but the details I didn't really know completely, like I, like I know now. So the first one is something that goes way back. Years ago, I was up in the, in the bungalow colony, uh, in, uh, and, and, and there was a, a bakery that was at that time located in Woodridge. Uh, no, no, it wasn't Woodridge. It was in uh, it was another city. But anyway, that bakery, um, it was Woodburn. That was what it was. It was Woodburn. And the bakery in Woodburn, I went in there, and I was asking the owner, I believe it was the one there. Maybe it was a different one. I asked the owner, what do you do? He's a good man. I said, they, uh, what do you do? When do you mafish challah? Doesn't it go on in the middle of the night they're doing the baking? He says, yes. I said, how do you mafish the challah? He said, because the goy takes off the challah. In the morning, I take from what the goy took off. The goy takes off from each batch, and then I take off from him in the morning. So I went to Rabbi Zinn, who was my rabbi, Ravasha Zinn, and I asked him, Rebbe, what do you do here? Is this acceptable? So he said, yes, it's acceptable. Of course, it would be nice other ways, but 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, what else are you going to do? So this is a very acceptable acceptable procedure. They're relying on the goy to take it off. This was back maybe 30 years ago. Uh, and and, and uh, that's, what, that's what I saw. And, I, and I've seen it again and again in different places that they were relying on this, the goy taking off from the dough, and from that he's going to make challah, and then he doesn't say it's challah. And the Jew comes in the morning and, and separates from that, mixed all together, he separates out and says, this is challah. And then they bake. I mean, it wasn't baked yet. Okay, so the, uh, that, that's what, uh, that, that's what I was told over there. And he discusses it, Rabbi Miller, and he suggests this is, as the first approach. He said, now there's a problem. Maybe the goy is going to skip some of the batters, and maybe he'll take, a, he'll take three pieces at once, and from the last batter, or five pieces or whatever it is from the last batter, and make you fool, fool you into thinking it was the other ones. So therefore, he recommends, which is interesting, that you could have a camera in the bakery so the mashkia could check the camera if he wants to, and make sure that the goy is taking off from each and every mara, each each mix each mixing of dough, he would remove some dough, and then eventually in the morning the owner of the mashkia. Well, I mean, I'm actually uh, here we're talking about a, we're talking about non-from owners, and we talk about the mashkia. My case with the bakery, the woodburn was from owner, 
and he was taking off the chal, and the kasha says he relied on him. There was no maskiach in the bakery at all, but that was the situation. Okay, the second approach, which is also very common today, is we call tevel matzah. Tevel mm-hmm. matzah means matzah that never had the chal removed. Now, if you look at a box of matzahs, it says on the, on the package, it says, Chala is genumen. Chala was removed. In every box of matzah, it says it. This is an old thing to write this down on the, on the, on the thing, just like you write over there, kosher and parva and deshen and everything. So they used to always write on a box of matzahs, chala is genumen. But these matzahs that they use, they're called tevel matzahs, they get it made in a company and tell them, don't take off the chala. Now that needs chala to be removed. They take that box of matzah tevel boxes and they put it in the bakery, and then the mashkiach announces that one square centimeter of that matzah that's tevel is designated as challah for each batch of dough which will be produced that day. That's what they do. And some people actually do it somehow. Don't ask me how. They do it from their office. But we're talking about they're going there. And they're seeing it, and they're just saying these words. And that works. Now, there's a couple of questions here. How can it work when you, when you, didn't, uh, you, didn't, you didn't make the dough yet? Some, didn't, you know, some things just sit in flour and didn't make the dough yet. So you can take it off of what's going to happen today. You're only doing this one today. Well, that's one question. Mm. But the reason why they have to be tevel is because you, you can't have matzah, you can't have hummus, you can sorry, you can't have removed chal a second time. If how it was removed, it was removed. So that's the uh, the eighth of number two, the second suggestion. Now, uh, really, this is supposed to be done at the time when this, everything is done at once. You know, like you're making the dough and you're making the bread and the house. And, and here, you're doing this in the morning for the future. How does that work? So the answer is, Rabbi Miller points out, the Shlomo Miller, that yes, you could remove challah in advance. You just have to say the following words, when the dough is needed. In other words, you were talking about the future, and it works. You have to say, when the dough is needed, when you need the dough, that's when uh, it'll be effective. So that anything during that day, it just has to be that it's the flour and the other ingredients are there in the premises. If you get a delivery that day, that's a different question. But uh, if, you, if you we're talking about that which is in the bakery at the present time, anything, even though it wasn't used yet, even though you're going to make the dough later, it can be included in the one half flushes challah in the beginning of the day. And that's what they're doing. There's another, there are other problems with this little, this little approach, and that's why he, he suggests the third approach. Um, some say that once you removed, let's say, the box of, let, let's say from the, uh, the box of matzahs, the question is whether that box of matzahs could ever be used more than once. I mean, that's why he says only a certain part of that, that one centimeter. And the question is whether you can separate that centimeter from the other parts of it, and, or, or you have to say that the whole, the whole matzah is taken care of already, in which case you've got to keep switching these matzahs very quickly. Well, another thing is the Mordechai says that you can't, you can't be matrish from goods that are raw products. It was the cast baked already. That's a, that's a difficulty. So this whole idea doesn't go according to the Mordechai. And the last thing he says is here is that if the bakery sees the flour, I mentioned that already, if they get flour during the day, then you have to, uh, you know, have to make another announcement. So he gives another idea, which is a third idea. So the first one was what I saw in the old days. The glory removes from each and every batch, and then he puts it all together, and then he doesn't say, this is challah, I mean, he's a goy. He can't do mitzvah challah for you. And then you, the goy, the yid comes in the morning, and he takes off a piece and says, this is challah from this. That's one like, suggestion. The second one was the tevel matzahs, which is very, very common. Now, in tevel matzahs, by the way, it must be that it's the same min. In other words, if you were talking about wheat, you need matzahs that are wheat. But if you're making something of barley, you need matzahs that are barley. So you have, there are people who make special matzahs just for this purpose for the mashkicham to use. Okay. The third idea is a little strange to us. We, we're not used to it. The goy does the mixing. I mean, that's the answer. A goy will do the mixing, and, he, and the Jew gives the mixing bowl to the goy, 
and he makes it, sets it up that whenever flour is poured into the mixing bowl, that goy will be kind of the flour, and because he's Kenyan chutzir, the, 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 in other words, the, the mixing bowl is his, given as a gift. Now anything that's done in that becomes ipso facto, becomes his. So that's the concept called Kenyan chutzir, that he acquires it, and therefore you don't need challah, because it's goyesha bread. Okay, I don't know if that's such a great idea. For other reasons, we're not going to get into it today. But that is what he says. Um, the last thing I, I, I want to say uh, that Rabbi Miller pointed out is that if a bakery, let's make says, makes three batches of dough, and each one has less than a shear challah, there's not a full shear challah, and he makes three batches, and then each one is made into the cookies, and they're all in the oven at the same time. Can you be can you be mafresh challah? And he says no. Putting in the oven at the same time or on the same baking rack doesn't make it serif for the mitzvah of a freshest challah. So you have to take it all together afterwards and you cover it over, or whatever. You put it in one container, or you did it before, but you can't. And the oven is not combining it. You know, there was a very interesting psak over there. He talks about a very other interesting thing, extremely interesting, but the time really is out, and I don't know how if I, can, if I can get into it. So I'm going to just say it in a nutshell. A lot of people talk about bloodshot meat. I don't even know if you know what it is. But bloodshot meat is you see a little blood there, and you know that the, it's stultified and never got removed with the, with the salting. So... Technically, bloodshot meat is a big problem. Shulchan Aruch says that if it's uh, if it's nitzra hadam machmas maka also levashlo, and you know, until you remove the remove that blood, so you're really supposed to take the blood out, cut it out, and before you salt it. And they didn't do it. You see bloodshot meat. You see little circles, little of blood there. So he said, Rabbi Shlomo Miller, I'm going to read it from the paper here, so that you don't get confused over here. He said. Blood is considered part of the meat until it separates from the meat. The small spots of blood are not considered to have been separated and therefore are just meat, which is permitted. Most examples of bloodshot meat, which consumers find, uh, are just minimal amount of blood and the meat is permitted. So the fact that you see a little dot of blood, you say, oh, that, that's blood in there. Yes, it is. Maybe it is blood, technically, but it's blood that was never moved, never came out. And I'll pee alacha, it's mutter. So this bloodshot thing, which scares a lot of people, is not as so dramatic. Rabbi Shlomo Miller, the poisek from Toronto, Canada, told, told the Oilam for the ACO uh, meeting uh, two months ago. That means concludes our program. I just want to remind you who you're listening to, Kashrus Magazine, editor, Rabbi Yosef Wickler. The show was Kashrus on the air. If you want to ask any questions of Rabbi Nochmer Rabinowitz, who's going to be on the show with on April 6th, please contact us by calling 718-336-8544 or 732-534-9363 or send us an email at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. If you want to get the Pesach issue, Please call us ASAP, and we'll mail it out to you immediately. So make sure you do that. Uh, you can pick up some in Flatbush and a few stores. It's uh, right now in Eichler's and Flatbush, and it's in KRM and Borough Park. It's in uh, um, it, it's in and it's in McCoy's Farm. Those are four places you can get it right now in Flatbush. The the 2020, I mean 2020. I'm sorry, yeah, 2020. Uh, Kosher suit, a Passover guide from Kashrus Magazine, 5.95 in the stores, and also our new issue of the magazine itself came out. The, unfortunately, came out about the same time. That's also available in those stores. So until next week, this is your host Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine, wishing you a wonderful week.
anywhere, anytime, for everyone. This is jrootradio.com. Got a toothache? Need a filling? Not sure where to go or who to trust? Visit Dr. Yehoshua Cantor, General and Family Dentistry. Reasonably priced, accepts most major insurance, Hebrew speaking, open Sundays, warm and caring staff, child friendly and Hamish environment. Call them at 718 978 